0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University. Now your host, Doug Sweeney. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, and I am here today with our newest professor, our new Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and Cultural Engagement. Dr. Josh Chatro. We are excited to introduce him to you. We've been introducing him all summer to pastors and others in the area. Thank you, Josh, very much for being with us. It's
1: great to be here. It's great to be at Beeson.
0: Some of the folks, Josh, who listen to this podcast have met you already, but most of them have not. So before we start talking about Beeson and what you're going to be doing here in your writing, let's just introduce you again to, to another audience, our podcast audience. Tell us just a little bit about your childhood, your education, your call to ministry, uh, and your early ministry experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm the youngest of three. Uh, I grew up mostly in South Georgia. My dad was a fighter pilot, and my mom was a teacher. A A funny story about that, my mom was a reading teacher, and as a Teenager, I just wasn't interested in books, <laughs> and so <laughs> was she a little frustrated with you? Very, at that stage? very frustrated, um, and so now, uh, you know, as uh, my parents are still faithful teachers in their in their church. My dad's a Sunday school teacher, small group teacher, as an elder at his church, but. They tell the story of, you know, there's hope for your kids <laughs> through me, <laughs> something happened and I'll get to that in a little bit that that changed my life and, and changed uh, some of my interests. But I grew up, uh, as I alluded to, really playing sports uh, and uh, grew up in a Christian home and uh, I heard the gospel from an early age, but it it really began to stick in my life in high school. And in high school, I, I really trusted in the Lord as my, as my, as my Lord and savior. And, uh, even in those early times, didn't really know what I was doing, but was trying to have like Bible studies, evangelistic Bible studies with my classmates. I went to a public school. Um, but I, but I was, uh, I was uh, passionate, but really didn't know kind of how to do that. When I got to college, some men—I I went to Georgia Southern University, which is near Savannah, Georgia—and played soccer there and was a business management major. And when I got to, to school there, some guys grabbed me and began to really show me how to how to have evangelistic Bible studies, how to teach, how to uh, how to really study the Bible better for myself. And those are some transformative years for me there. And as I began to do evangelistic Bible studies uh, with my soccer teammates and other people and, and, and was a leader on the campus there, I said the, the Lord called me into full-time ministry and uh, met my wife, Tracy, there. And we got married um, what I like to think is young, but maybe maybe back then and in the South, maybe it's not that young. I was 23 and Tracy was 22. And mm-hmm. We packed up all our stuff and went to Southern Seminary. Uh, we I blitzed through an, a master's degree, uh, and my wife was nur- was a nurse, and uh, we did that in three years. And I had more gas in the tank, and we sensed the Lord might be doing something in our life um, as far as more education. And it was it's really during that period uh, where I just. Grew in my love for reading and books and theology, and so the kid who who um who who his mom couldn't pay him to read a book turned out all right. (laughs) Ended up I you know I was asking for books for every Christmas and with all my you know change that I had during that time to get more theology and more reading and. And, and just just fell in love with not only more deeply with the Lord but with the great tradition and um, the, the resources um, to think differently to live differently um, and 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 love Jesus more through that time and uh, began to pastor during my PhD program so the agreement Tracy and I had was she would let me do a PhD <laughs> if I slowed down and and started working in the church and that was really one of the best things for me um, one of the things that happened was as I was pastoring and doing a PhD really I was doing the research and work but always with a kind of so what attitude in my in, in my head of saying, okay, how do you apply this? How does this work in the church, and and so that's really where kind of apologetics comes into the picture, mm-hmm. um, where I'm saying, okay, how how does how does this fit into the questions that people are asking me in the church? Even though I was a, you know, I, I was really doing my PhD in theology. But um, I was the only one, you know, close to a PhD in my in my little community there. And so, if people had questions about the Bible, they didn't care what your discipline was. If they had a question about God, they were coming to me. And so, uh, and so, I started looking around. How are how are apologists doing this? How how, how what are, what are the resources that the church has and the tradition has to help us respond and to answer people's questions in evangelism? people's doubts within the church.
0: And what was the church you were serving at that stage?
1: So I was at a small church, well, two different churches. The first part of my Ph.D., I was at Bacon's Castle, which is in Surrey, Virginia. It's a small town, um, uh, uh, southeastern Virginia. And then for my Ph.D., for my dissertation phase, I was in Dublin, Georgia, Uh, First Baptist, Dublin, and I was in both churches, I was an associate pastor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you said your PhD was in theology. What did you write your dissertation about?
1: So I did my PhD in biblical theology, and I I focused on the Gospels, in particular, Jesus'
0: teaching on repentance and forgiveness. Mm, Nice. Uh, And the connection to apologetics, you started to tell us, was really practical, ministerial, trying to be a good pastor, trying to be a good witness, answering the questions that came your way, deepened your interest in thinking more carefully and maybe in a more systematic way about the task of apologetics? Yeah. Well, it started off, I wrote
1: a, uh, my first two books were with uh, Andres Kostenberger and Daryl Bach, and we were responding to Bart Ehrman. And so Bart Ehrman's a uh, critical uh, scholar, agnostic, former uh fundamentalist, evangelical, and then um, became agnostic while he was working on his, um, well, it might have been after he finished his PhD, but really began to question uh, during graduate school.
0: Yeah. And for listeners who don't know this already, he's become one of the biggest critics of Christianity in our age.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, so, he was writing all these uh, New York Times bestsellers at a very popular level, explaining things like textual criticism, uh, how the Gospels work. Except, of course, uh, Ehrman has a very skeptical bent on those on those topics and on those fields. And so, uh, I proposed to to Daryl as and "Hey, why don't why don't we or you know why not we why why don't we get together and write something?" That, that addresses this uh, from a more conservative perspective and these topics. And so we, we came out with a couple of books that, that do that. And so that kind of got me into this, uh, not just at a local church level, but more at a national stage in writing. And, and so that was my first entrance into it, and then, as I began to think more systematically about the discipline of apologetics, how it should be related to evangelism, how it should be related to the church, and really how apologetics what it, what, I, what I grew in kind of my conviction is that apologetics is really a culminating discipline. Mm. That, that takes these other semin- these other disciplines that you learn at a place like Beeson or in seminary and brings them together for this moment of ministry. So it's very similar to preaching. It's very similar to counseling, where you're having to bring all this together and um, to think carefully about the integration of history and New Testament studies and Old Testament studies and theology and philosophy. Um and to do that within the church to help people on the ground, yeah, it's it's a huge task. And uh, but I, I saw I saw many times analytical philosophers were doing that work, and really I benefited from that work. But I saw that they were bringing kind of really really majoring on one discipline rather than integrating those disciplines. And a lot of times, uh, analytical philosophers. Um, uh, they haven't been as plugged into the church as they could be, mm-hmm. and and so I, I saw some opportunities, kind of some things that we could do better. Not to say they sh- analytical philosophers or philosophers shouldn't be part of that. We need them within this kind of team approach to apologetics and evangelism. But they're one part, but not the only part.
0: It sounds like your own story or the story of God's work in your own life as a young man kind of bears out these emphases that you want to make about the task of evangelism apologetics and how they're related to the study of theology, the practice of ministry, being a good disciple of Jesus day by day in high school Mm -hmm. you become an evangelist Mm -hmm. you go to seminary, you dig deep in Bible and theology, as you start pastoring you realize all right, people have questions Mm -hmm. that, that don't emerge in the same way that questions emerge in seminary that somebody with a seminary degree, somebody with some biblical theological training ought to be ready to answer, and it turns out the Lord had for you a a lifelong ministry as an evangelist and apologist. Here's a question that's not related directly to your story, but what you said a few minutes ago about your systematic approach to to evangelism and apologetics. What is it, really? I mean, if you had to give us Just sort of one minute on what is Chatro like as an evangelist apologist? What will he be like as the Billy Graham chair at Beeson? How does he think evangelism and apologetics are supposed to relate to the rest of the the MDiv curriculum at Beeson, to the rest of the life of discipleship, uh, walked by all kinds of people in the churches? What would it be? What's your approach to evangelism and cultural engagement?
1: Yeah. Well, first, it's to have a really deep understanding of the gospel <laughs> and to see the gospel as this diamond that we hold up and we can we can kind of look at it from different angles and see different parts of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to me in the New Testament that, you know, if you, there's all these different formulas were given for the gospel or different kind of ways that the gospel is presented, and they're 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 often just a little bit different here. Different different things that are emphasized, whether it's the resurrection or substitutionary atonement, or um, just just various different aspects that we can kind of shed the light on our adoptions as sons and daughters. Um, and so, so, so on one hand, we need to have this really deep understanding of the gospel, which is kind of like what we all need as Christians to have a deep understanding of the gospel. But then we also need to have a, a very, uh, an understanding of what's going on culturally around us. So one way I put this is we need to understand the gospel stories in all its little bits and big parts. And then we need to understand the stories that are being told around us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, So in doing that, the story, the gospel never changes. The stories that are being told around us change. And by understanding those stories, understanding their weaknesses, understanding what attracts people to the story of meritocracy or the story of romance or these things that people are actually living for and devoting their lives to, we're able to say, okay, how is that going to end up? But at the same time, we can understand why people are attracted to them, but then we can contrast them with a the gospel story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what I've called this is inside out. We, we learn to do this, but we learn, we learn to step inside someone's story. We, we learn to step inside how someone's living and say, listen, this is, this is the problem with this way. This is where it's going to lead. It's ultimately going to lead to a kind of death. And to find life, this is the gospel story. This is the story of God. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story we were made for, you were made for. And now that's going to involve argumentation along the way, various different types of argumentation. But it right from the start, it's not, it's not like saying, okay, let's remove the gospel from this and maybe... If we really get at argumentation, we can kind of have a chain of argument, chain of argument, chain of argument until we reach the gospel. But rather, we can have it and kind of compare and contrast all the way through conversations. And I find this is actually much more dialogical than if I sit down and try to get somebody to track along with me with maybe a traditional argument for God. I want to use those at the right time, maybe with the right person. But I can start off with the gospel and boldly proclaim that, and then bring along the argument or contrast um, with, with their worldview
0: as I go. Yeah, that's great. And just so our listeners know, um, several years ago, you published an award-winning book on this theme called Telling a Better Story. Yes. And I want to commend that to our, to our <laughs> listeners here while we got you. Uh, all right, let's get back to your own personal story, your own biography before we get to the present When you finished your PhD and after you'd been pastoring for a while, I know you did take an academic appointment at Liberty University, and I know you've you founded a center for public Christianity. Let's bring your story kind of up to the present here. When did you get called to join up at Liberty, and and what did you do there?
1: Uh, I think it was 2014. I'm getting old enough where dates don't come to mind. I'm pretty sure it's 2014. Uh, I was it was my first academic post, and they threw a lot at me. It was to to teach courses and to start a new uh, a new work there, which was the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement. Uh, I I taught undergrads as well as grad students and even some PhD students before I was done. But also, I I worked with students on the ground there who were trying to think through. Uh, you know, apologetic issues, cultural issues. Uh, one of the great things about being a, at, at a divinity school is uh, at, at Liberty, I was able to pull in a lot of the faculty from other departments to think through, okay, what is, what is the integration of literature and apologetics and cultural engagement look like, or law? And so we had, a, we had academic fellows from different uh, departments at the university that worked with us at the center and, and developed some material out of
0: that. And after several years doing that, uh, I happen to know you moved to Raleigh, North Carolina to start another center. Tell our listeners just a little bit about that. It was a very
1: different center. It was it was, it was really grounded in a fellows program where we took tw- uh, uh, 20 to 30 emerging leaders in the city who were Christians who were trying to work out. Uh, in different vocations, in different callings within the city, most of them uh, not in full time ministry. And they're trying to work out okay, how do I be a Christian leader in this particular field and care for my community and be a faithful witness to the gospel? So we took them through a kind of nine month Bonhoeffer life together, throw in some uh, Schaefer, LaBrie kind of cultural engagement. And, and then really, uh, I think, uh, really some of the best from the um, devotional life of the church and pulled them into a, a nine-month program. Uh, and that was a special five years for, for me and my family to lead as just so many bright uh, emerging leaders in Raleigh and, 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 and serve the church there.
0: And it was a super fruitful ministry and a time where you were able to continue your writing ministry as well. That all sounds wonderful. So how did the Lord move you from there to Beeson Divinity School? What what was the draw? How did we get you to come to Beeson?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I thought that I was, um, I thought I was, I thought I was done with like, with the uh, kind of being in the academy full time, um, I, I, had, I had kept my foot in the academic world, but I thought, okay, I'm going to be kind of serving in this, uh, this church role as a resident theologian and doing this kind of work as centers, as a center that kind of has, that connects with the academy, but then brings it to everyone. Um, and I told Tracy, my wife, uh 2 or 3 years ago Doug I've told you this story after after you you hired me but she, she we were saying this is this has been really good and here in Raleigh and and she said I don't really want to move again and I said don't worry the only school I would go to is Beeson Divinity School and uh they're not going to call me so don't worry about it <laughs> and uh and it was it was because of the vision that I had seen here just from a distance. I'd never been of uh, the, the kind of life on life that I'm, I have the conviction that theological education and formation of future pastors and ministry leaders is ideally done uh, in person and shared life together and the respect I had for the faculty at Beeson, and just the ethos of Beeson. I'm convictionally Baptist that really likes hanging around other Protestants as well. <laughs> and I learn a lot from my Anglican friends and my Lutheran friends and Presbyterian friends, and I, I really enjoy being in that environment. And for all those reasons, not, not in any way was I like reaching out to <laughs> to Beeson. I was just telling my wife that'd be the only place, and it, it, it'd have to be a God thing because I don't think that's going to happen. And so, when the job came uh, available, and I got a note saying, "Hey, maybe you should apply for this," um, you know, we began to really pray and consider it, just given the fact that we had kind of told the Lord, this is the only place. <laughs> and then and then we got, we got an email.
0: Well, we sure are glad you said yes. And the Lord brought you here. And of course, all of us have a lot to learn from you. We're looking forward to learning from you this year and for many years to come. What kinds of stuff will we learn from you this year? What do we have you teaching this year? Yeah, I'm teaching
1: evangelism and church planning. And I think that's kind of be kind of my baby that I'll own here and I'll teach all the students and so I'm excited about that. I'll, I'll teach a course on uh, theology of pastoral ministry uh, and then I'm teaching a J term on Augustine, Augustinian apologetics.
0: All right, so in that last class is a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about because we're not only going to learn from you as a teacher here in the building, we're going to continue to learn from your writing ministry as well. Uh, of course, we've already mentioned Telling a Better Story. That's probably your most famous book. It's done very well. But you've got a couple of other very recent uh, books that I want to let our people know about. And one is called The Augustine Way. Yes. So Augustine has been something of a model for you, a resource for you, as you've thought about Gospel Witness. Can you give just the one-minute version of what you're doing in that book to our audience? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So Augustine's obviously an important figure. Everyone recognizes that. And, And yet he's a figure that hasn't been incorporated actually very much into conversations about apologetics and evangelism. And so when you look at kind of methodologies, you don't have people who are constructing methodologies appealing to Augustine. And yet, Augustine, as a pastor, I'd say, first of all, he was a pastor, he was a bishop. We we kind of looked to Augustine as a theologian, and yes, he was a, a political theorist, in some sense, maybe he was. We looked to him as a philosopher, but first of all, his identity was a pastor, and a pastor who was really concerned about conversion, mm-hmm. and really concerned to persuade not only the mind, but the heart. Yeah. And so... So we found as as we were, as I read this book with Mark Allen, my my friend and former colleague, as we were doing, uh, we, we were writing another book, we kind of realized no one's really appealing to Augustine in this way. And so we had these intuitions, but of course deadlines, you know, are coming. And so we couldn't really explore that, <laughs> but we we made a note of it and we kind of came back and started reading his, um, particularly Confessions and City of God. And we we just, um, Augustine really helped us to not only articulate some things we were thinking, but really go much deeper and learn from him. And we've tried to bring that, uh, those lessons from Augustine to the, to the church and, to leaders, um, this book's a little bit. If you've if you've read Telling a Better Story, it's a bit more academic. Um, but there's there's connections that we we make between the two works.
0: Yeah, uh, and as someone who's read it, it's a great book. And anybody who loves to read good books and knows a little bit about theology is willing to go through it. I mean, it's for them too. They can. It's very clearly written. Yeah, we
1: we appeal to you know pop culture stuff, Ted Lasso. Um, Apple, you know, Apple Plus TV shows, stuff like that as we go, partly because we see Augustine appealing to things in his own context that we're kind of in at the moment. So we felt like if we are going to write a book called The Augustine Way, we actually need to try to in some sense, uh, reflect how Augustine would go about doing things today. And so we tried to tell story and use story uh, throughout the chapter to kind of outline what we were doing. So we were trying not to write a boring academic book. So, but I just wanted to give A little bit of a caution that we ask a little bit more of you than telling a better story does.
0: And your newest book is hot off the press, by which I mean you've gotten one copy so far. I'm not sure anybody who's ordered it yet has received it, but they're about to receive it. Mm -hmm. It's called Surprise by Doubt. Uh, another good book, another book that's kind of challenging in some ways, because uh, Christians don't often want to be honest about doubts that occur to them from time to time and that they wrestle with from time to time. Tell us a bit about that book and what you're doing there.
1: Yeah. Well, I wrote it with another friend of mine, Jack Carson, who uh, was my former student, now finishing up his PhD at Aberdeen. And really what we saw is a lot of students, a lot of young people, but not just young people, were were having these doubts and were having these doubts about their faith or deconstructing, as, as, as sometimes people put it today. And there were kind of two things happening. Either on one hand, people would kind of say, Doubts are great (laughs) Doubt everything Doubt You know And it's kind of This embrace of doubt We didn't think That was quite right (laughs) From a biblical perspective (laughs) (laughs) And so So on one hand This kind of celebration Of doubt isn't, Isn't Wasn't the right way to go On the other hand There was this Condemnation of doubt And what What we saw in what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, talks about as a secular age is there's this, this contestability that we feel today, especially young people, but it's not limited to young people, who now feel the fragility of having a view that they were always taught growing up, but then they hit a certain age where really smart people disagree with them and bring out objections or other things that... They don't really know what to do with. And then they turn to the church. And sometimes, you know, they become very disillusioned with the church, maybe in some of their responses to their questions, or maybe just combined with the general failures of the church that are all over the media today. And so what we're trying to do in the book is to say, in some cases, at least, people have kind of explored the faith through what we call the attic in the book, which is a kind of form of Christianity that's separated from the great tradition and hasn't positioned itself within the small C Catholic tradition of Augustine and uh, C.S. Lewis and all these great thinkers that we like to think about uh, when you go to seminary. But most evangelicals, they don't know too much about them. They haven't, and and most students don't either. And so what we're trying to do is say— hey, actually, maybe you should leave the kind of attic and come to the main floor of Christianity where you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who've had their doubts too. And they've created these kind of different pathways to help you deal with them. And so that's that's what we're doing in the book. We're we're really using C.S. Lewis, Augustine, and Pascal as our tour guides.
0: Hmm, sounds great. Sounds like a wonderfully uh, Bison-esque sort of book as well, sort of rooting people in the great tradition, uh, the great roll call of the faithful, the great cloud of witnesses that help us run the race that the Lord has set before us today. Well, listeners, I think you can tell we have an exciting new Billy Graham professor here with us, Dr. Shatro. We're really grateful for you and your faithfulness to the Lord and your ministry and your willingness to come and do ministry with us. Uh, We always end our podcast interviews by asking guests the same question. Uh, And that question is, what's the Lord doing in your life these days? What's he teaching you these days that we might leave our listeners with as a way of kind of edifying them, helping them run the race that the Lord has set before them? Yeah,
1: well, I have a. I have a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old. And without embarrassing them on this podcast, I'm still figuring out how to be a dad. <laughs> and the Lord is is teaching me patience. The Lord is reminding me I need to ask my kids for forgiveness. And that He loves—that the Lord loves me even in the midst of my failures as a as a dad. And— yeah, so all the all those things, I think, in the midst of the chaos of a move, you know, where everything's kind of <laughs> tensions are heightened within the you family, had a slightly
0: stressful summer. <laughs> uh, the
1: Lord's been working on me, and I come back to the gospel. You know that, as Tim Keller used to say, that we're bigger sinners than we can imagine, but we're much more loved by God than we can imagine as well, um, and we know that through the cross and through Christ.
0: Listeners, this has been our newest faculty colleague, Dr. Josh Shetro. He is our new Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and Cultural Engagement. I hope this interview has whetted your appetite for more from Dr. Shetrow. Please come onto campus and get to know him yourself. Uh, Hang out with us and with him a little bit. He'll be preaching in chapel in January. He's got some great new books. Thank you, Josh, for being with us. And listeners, thanks again for tuning in. We love you. We're praying for you. Please pray for the ministries of Beeson Divinity School. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from the campus of Samford University. Our theme music is by Advent Birmingham. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our engineer is Rob Willis, and our show host is Doug Sweeney. For more episodes and to subscribe, visit BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast. You can also find the Beeson podcast on iTunes and Spotify.